Well, good morning, everyone. I even out in California, it's still morning, isn't it, Russ? So I can say that. Uh, welcome. Today, Lord willing, we will finish our study of this little, at least I regard it as a little gem in the Old Testament of Habakkuk. Uh, we're in chapter two, and I'd like to just briefly summarize where we are and then really kick in with verse 15. Um, as you know, I think all of you, as I look at the, the, the names here, all of you have been with us on this study of Habakkuk, so I don't need to review very much, but Habakkuk is a contemporary of Jeremiah and Zephaniah. He lives right before uh, the conquest of Jerusalem, Judea, under Nebuchadnezzar. Um, in 586 BC, this, the city of Jerusalem will be totally destroyed. Everything will be taken, all the wealth of Jerusalem will be taken to Babylon, including tens of thousands of Jews. That is what is called the exile. <clears throat> Habakkuk is warning ultimately warning the people of Judah, but it's in the form of, and this is what's so unique, a dialogue between him and the Lord. And he is asking questions of the Lord. Question number one is, why are you allowing such violence and morality? God's answer, don't think that because you don't see anything that I'm not working. I'm raising up the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, who will discipline my people in Judah. And question number two distilling it down in essence, is how can you use an evil pagan nation to judge your people, meaning your covenant people, the people of Israel? And God's response to that, which we looked at last week, is I am going to raise them up, but I will judge them. And his words, God's words, in the early part of chapter 2 are scathing in how he depicts the king of Babylon, which would be Nebuchadnezzar, and then in verse 4, which is probably the most important verse of the book, he contrasts, he, God, contrasts the arrogance of the king of Babylon versus the people who walk by faith. And that becomes an important principle that is carried into the New Testament. That verse, uh, Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, is quoted again and again and again in the New Testament. In Romans, in Galatians, in Hebrews, it's a very important principle. The people that love God walk by faith, and that contrast is, is a major point of the book. And then beginning, as we started last week, and beginning with verse, I believe it's verse 6, yes, verse 6, God gives the reasons why he will judge Babylon. We've looked at three of the reasons. Now, you can easily figure the reasons out by the term woe, W-O-E. You see it in verse 4, you see it in verse 8, you see it in verse 12, excuse me, verse 9, you see it in verse 12, and then you see it, uh, which we're not there yet, you see it in verse 15. So we've already gone through three of the woes that God has organized his court case, if you will, against the Babylonians, why he will judge them. The fourth reason is begins with verse 15. Now, I want to read that, and I'm going to come back, and we're going to take it apart, because there's a lot in this particular judgment. Woe to him, again, I'm in verse 15, woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, the destruction of the beasts that terrified them, for the blood of man and the violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Now, there's a lot in this reason for God judging the Babylonians. First of all, woe to him who makes his neighbors drink, pour out your wrath and make them drunk. There is considerable reasons why God is not saying drink and drunk as alcoholic inebriation, where you're out of control. What he's saying is, you Babylonians in your conquest have so demeaned and diminished people, they're incapacitated, they're humiliated, they're vulnerable, it's as if you've made them drunk and you want to gaze at your nakedness, that is a figure of speech, or you are dishonoring them, you are humiliating them, 
you are absolutely destroying their civilization. They're destroying their way of life. You have treated people, more importantly, you have rendered people to be as if they are drunk. And that is accurate. The Babylonians in their methodology of conquest was aimed at utterly destroying all civilized way of life for the people they conquered. And that is the reason why they would burn everything in the city and enslave and carry the inhabitants of those cities and villages into exile. They would displace them. And of course, that is exactly what the Babylonians will do to Judah in 586. It actually started in 605 and 597, and then the final block of time is in 586, where they would decimate Judah. They totally destroyed all the villages, cities, and of course, the major city of Jerusalem, and took everybody in exile. They incapacitated, humiliated, and made vulnerable all areas that they conquered. And so God is holding them accountable for this. So you see that in the next verse, verse 16. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. Now, uncircumcision means that the Babylonians are not part of the covenant people of God. Remember, circumcision is the mark of the Abrahamic covenant. So in Talionic justice, which is the justice of the Bible, as you treated people as you treated them, making them incapacitated, humiliated, and vulnerable, the same thing will happen to you. That's God's method of justice. And what they did to their subjects, i.e., in this case, the people of Judah, God will do to them. And that is exactly what happened in 612 B.C. when Cyrus the Great, the Persian Empire, destroyed Babylon and did exactly the same thing. Now, notice the middle of verse 16. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you, and utter shame will come upon your glory. This is a statement of God's sovereignty. Cyrus the Great of Persia will do this to Babylon, but it is God who is providentially, sovereignly, in his ex execution of Talionic justice, doing this to Babylon. And you see something in the middle of verse 16, which is consistent throughout the Bible. The metaphor of a cup is the cup of God's wrath. It is in almost every major pro prophecy, prophetic book in the Old Testament, and it is a major part of the book of Revelation, where the cup of God's wrath is being poured out. That's in the book of Revelation, for example. <clears throat> so again, you see here, two aspects of what God is doing as he levels his court case against the Babylonians, as he is presenting the evidence of why what he will do to Babylon is just, and it is in, a, it is in conjunction with, as I mentioned before, God's method of justice, which is talionic justice. Now, I've talked about that a lot in our class. I hope that's not a new idea to you. But talionic justice is the law of retribution. God will do to you what you do to those whom you oppress. Then, verse 17, as a part of their humiliation, this is of Babylon, as a part of, of what Babylon did in humiliating and incapacitating and destroying and making vulnerable, it's what they did to Lebanon. Now, Lebanon is north of Israel. Modern-day Lebanon is north of Israel. At that time, it was a part of what was called Phoenicia. But Lebanon was the source of the great cedar trees. I've been in that part of the world a couple of times, and there are still these massive cedar trees. But what Babylon did is they stripped the land of these cedar trees. And in addition, they went on and when these massive hunts for animals, and they decimated virtually the entire animal population of Lebanon. So they destroyed their trees, taking all the Lebanon uh, cedar wood back to Babylon, but they decimated the forests. And as they were decimating the forests, they're on these massive hunts, killing animals. And look to what he says, for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. This is an important point that we sometimes even forget. God holds the human race accountable 
for how they take care of his world. Genesis 1, 26 and 27, through the end of the chapter in Genesis 1, human beings are given the responsibility as dominion stewards over God's world to take care of his world. It matters how we treat his world. And Babylon is being held accountable for decimating forests and wiping out entire populations of animals for their own benefit. And God says you're accountable for that. So it's a part of that humiliation and subjugation, incapacitation of whole nations. They wiped out everything that was necessary for that civilization to sustain itself, in this case, Lebanon. So that reminds us, at least I think it should, that Christians should be environmentalists. I don't mean that we're like the Sierra Club where we hug trees because they're God, but it matters how we treat God's land. It matters how we treat the animals. It matters how we treat the birds. To wantonly decimate a whole population is not honoring to God. That's not being a good steward of his world. And so part of holding Babylon accountable is what they did in subjugating, in this case, the, the area of Phoenicia, modern-day Lebanon. So this is a severe indictment that God is leveling against Babylon as the fourth major reason of why he will judge them. Again, Cyrus the Great, 612 BC, will do that. There's one final indictment, and that is verse 18 uh, and 19. It is idolatry. Now, what is in this passage is very similar to what you see in Jeremiah. It's very similar to what you see in Isaiah as the prophets indict idolatry, indict people who follow idolatry. Look at these statements. They're actually in the form of rhetorical questions. Verse 18, what prophet is an idol? when its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies. And so you see two things here. What prophet is an idol? A piece of wood, a piece of stone, made out of maybe gold or silver or bronze or whatever. The maker has shaped it. What, what, what prophet? What value is that? Because that image that piece of wood, that piece of stone, that piece of precious metal is a deceptive, duplicitous, lying God. Because the deceptive, duplicitous nature of an idol is you believe that idol can do something to help you. You believe that idol can answer your prayer. You believe that idol can guide you. No, it isn't. The idol represents lies, deception, duplicity. It distorts and it prostitutes everything associated with truth. For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. I have to think I'm doing a series at my church right now. I'm preaching a series on Elijah. And in two weeks, we will be in 1 Kings chapter 18, where Elijah is on Mount Carmel declaring and executing holy war against the Baals. And it's, it's so hilarious there as, as Elijah taunts the prophets, or hundreds of them with him on Mount Carmel, taunts the prophets and uh, uh, of Baal and saying, um, you know, Baal isn't answering you. Maybe he's asleep. Yell louder. Baal isn't answering you. I mean, maybe he's on a trip and you have to call him back home. And then he goes on. Maybe he's going to the bathroom, relieving himself. I mean, those kinds of taunts, because that is the heart of idolatry. You've shaped an image of a God, and you expect that God to do something for you, to take care of you, to providentially guide you. But this idol is shapeless, speechless, and filled with deception and lies. It will never deliver what you think it should. And that is the baseless debauchery of idolatry. And that is exactly what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 1.18 and following. What the human race has done with God's truth revealed in creation is they begin to worship the created thing 
and make idols out of those created things, birds, animals, powerful individuals, and you worship the created thing instead of the creator. God has no time for idolatry. And that is why God is so harsh with his people when they go into idolatry, because they're believing a lie, and amazingly, they construct images and worship that lie that is embodied in that piece of stone. And so God declares then, woe, in verse 19, woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and yet there is no breath at all in it. This is the inane stupidity of human beings worshiping a piece of wood or worshiping a piece of stone, even if it's overlaid with gold and silver. It has no life. It has no breath. The indictment is over. The evidence for the court case has been presented. Five categories of evidence. Now the indictment will lead to the carrying out of the sentence. That will not be until 612 BC. Uh, I'm sorry, I said uh, 612, 612 BC is when Babylon destroyed Assyria. In 539 BC, I'm sorry, 539 BC is when Cyrus will destroy the Babylonian Empire. I said 612, I'm wrong. That was Babylon destroying Assyria. 539 BC is when Cyrus the Great of Persia destroys the Babylonians. The sentence that God is executing here after the indictment will be carried out in 539 BC, about 50 years later. All right, now I want to I want to deal with verse 20, but are there any questions now on these five major? It's a it's a court case. God is presenting the evidence, and He's indicting Babylon for these five major violations of His standards, and He will carry out His justice, as I said, in about 50 years when the Persians destroy Babylonia in 590, 539 BC. Okay, is everybody with me? Yeah, Jim, I had a question on 16, uh, where the cup and the right hand, um, is there a correlation between the cup and the right hand there? Well, the right hand usually, and this is very, this is very consistent up until the modern world, up until the, the 17th century, the right hand of a sovereign is always the hand of power and authority. So the right hand of the sovereign, in this case, it's Yahweh, the right hand of the sovereign is holding the cup of wrath, and he's about to pour out that cup. So that's the connection. It's two metaphors, cup and right hand. And right hand always symbolizes power and authority. The cup is the cup of wrath. God's about to pour it out on Babylon. And then a second question, if you don't mind, would be, um, is all of this worship of an inanimate object a, a matter of ignorance of the presence of the Lord? Uh, the answer to that from the Apostle Paul is it's not down out of ignorance. It's down, down out of willful defiance, intentional defiance of God's revelation and creation. That's the whole argument of Romans 1.18 and following. God has revealed himself clearly in creation, what he has made. And Paul even cites attributes you can discern from studying God's creation. But instead, and this is the language of Paul in Romans chapter 1, that what humans do is suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So what do they do with the truth revealed in creation? What do they do in the, cre the truth that's revealed in what God has made to suppress that truth and begin to worship the created thing instead of the creator? I'm really quoting there from Romans. So the answer that's the answer to your question. It comes right from the Bible in Romans 1. This isn't out of ignorance. This is defiant, disobedience, willful defiance of what God has revealed. God always has a witness for himself. And we've done this many times. Remember, the witnesses are, one, his creation, two, human conscience, three, his moral law revealed to Israel, and four, in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so those, those, each one of those, the Bible uses the term witness. God has a witness for himself. And that's why Paul concludes in the book of Romans, no one 
will ever stand before God and say, I never knew about you. Paul says they are without excuse. They suppress the truth of God's witness, and therefore they're accountable. And that's why Paul, excuse me here, Habakkuk, that's why Habakkuk, who is speaking really for the Lord as a prophet of the Lord, is indicting them for willful defiance of what God has revealed, the witness of his creation. And the stupidity and absolute ludicrous nature of the idolater making things out of stone, making things out of wood, even encrusting it with gold and silver, and there's no life in it. It just stands there. doesn't do anything. And yet you worship it, you bow down to it, you feed it. I think I, I well, I don't know if I should tell you this, but it, it's really a fascinating story. It shocked me when I saw it. When I was doing my book on worldviews, we did an accompanying DVD to it, and we were in Hinduism. We're in Chicago, and there's a huge Hindu temple there. And that morning, they had just changed the food to the god Shiva. And there was a woman uh, and some drink, and there was a woman walking around the temple, just fast-paced, walking around and around and around and around. And we stopped her and asked her what she was doing. And she said, well, what I'm doing is I'm trying to, to show that Shiva should accept the food that we gave him. And it's a, it's, a piece of, it's a piece of stone encrusted with very precious metals, beautiful image. And I thought of this passage of the absurdity. It's absolutely ludicrous to put food and drink in front of a piece of stone. What does the text say? Has no breath in it at all. There's no life in that piece of stone, and yet you bow down to that, you worship it, you give your life to it. The Bible has absolutely nothing to do with idolatry. It, 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 the harshest words in the Bible are about idolatry, because you're not worshiping something that's alive. You're worshiping something that's dead. You're suppressing the truth about God that's revealed in his creation. You're suppressing it. It's a conscious, willful, intentional defiance of God. That's a long answer to your question, and I was actually preaching a little bit. Forgive me. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> so, so, Dr. Eckman, um, Jim, if I could ask a question, please. Of course, <clears throat> absolutely. <laughs> so, I mean, it's it's um, very clear that God is intervening on behalf of this is the northern tribe, right? Judah is that? This would be the southern tribe. The southern tribe. Southern Israel. Tribe. This is southern kingdom. That's right. But anyway, he's intervening on behalf of the southern kingdom with his. Habakkuk and engagement. Yes. Uh, so my, my question really is, what happens today? I mean, th does God intervene in the lives of other nations as well, or in the same way that he did with where Habakkuk is recording it today? And, and how does he do it? Does he raise up um, spiritual leaders, or does he rely on the church to do this? Or, I mean, how could we look at this today, I guess is the question. What, what implications for today? Wow, that is, that is a, a really uh, good question, and a wonderful question. The, uh, in a way, even as you answered it with some rhetorical question at the end, I think the answer to your question is, God does not have a prophet like Habakkuk speaking truth to a covenant nation of Israel and Judah, because there is no nation that is in an unconditional covenant relationship with God like Israel uh, is. However, God still does speak, and he's, Jim, he still speaks through those four major witnesses that I already talked about, creation, human conscience, God's moral law, and Jesus, the revelation of Jesus. But in a sense, you've answered your own question when you said, should it be the church? The answer is that yes, it is the church, which is people, which is you and it is I. We represent the Lord. So what, what among our task is to proclaim the word of the Lord and to proclaim what his truth is about him and call people to respond. 
Now, that's one of the challenges then of when you do that in the United States, you still have a, a fairly widespread degree of freedom to do that. But you get into other countries, you know, one thinks of the more extreme like North Korea, but even in communist China, as well as the Islamic countries. I mean, to proclaim truth like this is to put your head on a block. You're about to be killed. You'll be martyred. So, I mean, the answer to your question is God still has a witness. Those four key means of him witnessing to the human race are still there. Creation, conscience, is moral law, and Jesus. But it is the church's responsibility to take the message of Jesus to the world. Acts 1.8. Jesus is going back to the Father. He's sending the Holy Spirit. Start in Jerusalem, then Judea, then Samaria, then the uttermost parts of the world. We're still in phase four of that strategic plan. And so that's our tax. Now, we don't have the authority to speak a new revelation from God. God just told me, Russia, God is going to wipe you out tomorrow. We don't have that specific revelation, but we do have the revelation of God's Word, calling people to repentance, calling people to the salvation that is found only in Jesus Christ. That is our primary responsibility. That remains our primary responsibility. And so that's how God has continued to communicate His truth. His verbal revelation is being communicated to the world through the church. We are now the prophetic voice of God. We, I mean the church. We are the prophetic voice of God, taking His verbal revelation in the 66 of the books of the Bible and declaring it and proclaiming it. But it is up to each individual to do what they will with that truth that's revealed. So I, I, I hope I began to get a little bit of, a, of an answer to your question. Did, did I, Jim? <laughs> yes, you did. It would, I mean, just speaking personally about what I see, the degradation taking place in our country, it would be wonderful to have in a Habakkuk or some yes, spiritual yes. leader step forward to provide some kind of um, I don't know, leadership perhaps around this, but what I hear you saying is very much an individual responsibility where, where I live and the, and uh, then, the connections that I, you know, that, that I have, but it seems so frustratingly small what I could do in face of such an enormous challenge. Well, I, I agree with that, and that, that's a burden that is in my mind a, a lot the enormity of the task. But remember something, and you see this in the scriptures, um, whether you're in ancient Israel or whether you're in the New Testament, and you have Philip up in Samaria or Peter in Caesarea. Jim, people come to faith one person at a time. And as people come to faith one person at a time, and you keep multiplying that, that's what brings about transformation. In my morning Bible study that starts at 6.30, we are in the book of Acts, and we are just finished today, Acts 19, where Paul is in Ephesus. And he confronts the idolatry of Ephesus, which they worship the goddess Artemis, or the Roman name for her was Diana. And it's, that's an amazing chapter, because what happens is, is uh, Ephesus was one of the major centers of the occult in the Greco-Roman world, these people are coming to faith in Jesus Christ, and what are they doing? They're renouncing their idolatry, and they're burning their books and all of their idols. They're destroying them. And it's, it's, it's an amazing illustration of the transformation of a city, how the gospel transforms a city. And Ephesus becomes one of the great centers of Christianity. Paul spends three years there in his second third journey. The Apostle John will become the great bishop of Ephesus, serving all the churches of the Roman province of Asia, and he will disciple a whole new generation of leaders. Most of those are some of the great names of early church history, like Polycarp and Tatian and others who were discipled by John. And so Ephesus is utterly transformed as a city. How? By the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's why I am really challenged by what happened last Wednesday. I was reminded of something. The future of the United States of America does not, not rest with a political party. We saw an insurrection last Wednesday. 
However you look at that, that was an ugly thing. And people were carrying signs of Jesus. and so, That is not what Jesus Christ represents. Jesus represents his message of salvation. And it is the church that is the, the key to the future of the United States. Four great times in our history, God has sent a revival. My prayer and my work now is that God will, in his grace and mercy, send a fifth revival of this nation. But what Amen. is a revival? It starts with the church. Amen. It doesn't start with Washington, D.C. It doesn't begin with a new president or a new governor or a new mayor. It's the church. Charles Finney in the early 19th century, early 1820s would say, revival begins with a new act of obedience to Jesus Christ. That's what I want to see happen. Yeah, Jim, I, I think that's really right on. And I'd like to encourage Jim Beck in that his organization has brought many people to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And in the process also of what he does, there is new life coming into the, this world that will also know Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. So, Jim, uh, you are doing something, and you're not a small part, but you're an essential part of the total paradigm of redemption for our country and for the people in it. All right, good. But, Jim, I, I really went way off there on your, your question, but thank you for that. I really, really appreciate that. Look with me now at verse 20. What's the first word of verse 20? But. But. Thank you, Woody. You're the only one paying attention. But. Now, the contrast is being set up between the idolatry of verse 18 and 19 and indeed all of the indictments that are a part of chapter 2. But Yahweh is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. So you, you have this marvelous contrast between the silly, stupid idols of verse 18 and 19 and the living great I am. Remember, Yahweh, capital O-R-D. Yahweh is the self-existent, self-sufficient, great I am of the universe. It is the title of God that captures his essence. Where is he? He's in his holy temple. He's ruling from the place of sovereignty. And the only acceptable response is worship and silence and devotion to him. Listen as he speaks his oracles of judgment. Repent as he speaks his oracles of judgment. And so it's, that's all it is. It's one verse. But the, con the concept that are, are leveled in verse 22 are so compelling and so overwhelming, the only acceptable response is silence, worship, and devotion. And that, that verse, you and I have to remember that. Despite everything that's happening in this world, despite everything that, that has happened in the last couple of years, let alone just even what happened last Wednesday, God is still sovereign. He is still providentially accomplishing his purposes. And I want to remind you of something. I know you know this, but I want to remind you of it. God's primary purpose in history is redemptive. His primary purpose in 2021, the early days of 2021, is still redemptive. He wants people to respond to the message of the gospel of his son. Now, he is, he is in, he's in control of everything that's happening. He's permitting and allowing things to happen for greater purposes that eternity will explain to us. But in the midst of everything Habakkuk is saying, and everything Habakkuk is prophesying, he's reminding Judah, who is your God? He's Yahweh. He's in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. He has spoken. He's declared his oracles. Listen to him. And it's a fabulous, a fabulous summary in such a short little book. It's a fabulous summary of who God is. This then results in chapter 3 with 
I think one of the most magnificent hymns of worship in the Bible. And what Habakkuk does here, none of this is difficult, but Habakkuk just reviews in, and I'm going to itemize the categories in a minute, but he, he reviews this sovereign Lord who sits enthroned in heaven. What is he like? Is he like that piece of stone that has no breath in it? That, that metal image that's made of wood and has encrusted on a gold and silver, which is deceptive and duplicitous, never promises what you think it will. Is that the way our God is? Look at what he says. A prayer of Habakkuk, according to the Shigonot. That's a musical instrument. Don't worry about it. Verse 2, O Yahweh, I have heard the report of you and of your work, O Yahweh, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. All right, now the very first thing he says is he reviews in, a, in an incredible pithy summary that you are a God of history. You are a God whose sovereignty is revealed in what you've done in history. I've heard the report. I've heard of your work. To what could he be referring there? Well, he isn't explicit. We don't know, but probably he's a Jew. He's a prophet. He had the Torah. He had the histories for 2 Samuel. What report? Ah, the report of creation. Oh, the report of the Exodus. Oh, the report of the conquest under Joshua. That's the historical record of who Yahweh is. That's why God is a God of history. You and I are to study history, because history, because God's main plan is redemptive, history is a record of what God has done. And so much of the Bible is a history of what God has done. But Habakkuk says, notice this at the end, I'm getting really excited here, but notice at the end of verse 2, in the midst of your years, make it known, in wrath, remember mercy. That's amazing. That God, as the stories, as the record of history demonstrates, God has not only been a God of wrath, God's been a God of mercy. And there's no people on planet Earth that know that better than the children of Israel. Because God has poured out his judgment on them, but he has also poured out his mercy on them. And that's true today. God is both a God of wrath and a God of mercy. Let me put it another way, and this is not an original thought with me. God's wrath is always tempered by his mercy. Aren't you thankful for that? Aren't you thankful that God does not only deal with you on the basis of his wrath? If God dealt with Jim Ekman on the basis of his wrath alone, I'd be a smoldering cinder on the carpet. And so would you. But God's grace and mercy is how he's dealt with me. That's the why I came to know him in 1972. That's why I've walked with him since 1972. That's evidence of his mercy and grace. I certainly didn't earn it. I certainly didn't merit it. And to be very blunt, none of you have, although I don't know your lives or background. He's making a phenomenally important statement about the attributes of God, how they balance one another, wrath and mercy. The human race should be very thankful that God is not only a God of wrath, he is also a God of mercy. Because in his mercy and grace, he sent Jesus. He has every right to judge the human race and wipe it out. He chose not to do that. He chose to rescue it. And the rescue plan is centered in Jesus. Now he continues. Now here, we're going to get into some figurative language. But this next paragraph, starting with verse 3, it's like a theophany. It's like an appearance of God. And Habakkuk sees this. We are assuming it was kind of in a vision, but it's reviewing the history of God's power manifested in and through his people Israel. And all of the things that happened, 
So God came from Teman, the Holy One from Mount Paran. Teman is way down in the south in Edom. So God is coming from the south. His splendor covered the heavens. The earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the sun. Bright rays flashed from his hand. There he veiled his power. So whatever specifically Habakkuk is referring to here, and we're not sure, there's a lot of discussion. What he sees, and this is characteristic number one, he sees the splendor of God revealed. This isn't the God in that piece of stone. This isn't the God in that, that encrusted piece of wood over gold and silver. This is a God who moves and acts with splendor and power in history. And when he acts, his brightness is like the light. That's a simile. Rays flash from his hand, but that veiled his power. The forces of nature reveal God's power, but they also hide his great power. He can do so much more than that. He could stick out his hand, humanly speaking, and wipe out planet Earth. He could kick it out of its orbit that it would burn as a cinder. He chooses not to do that. Before him was pestilence. The plague followed at his heels. He, that could be a reference to the Exodus plagues that he leveled against Egypt, Exodus 7, 8, 9, 10, and following. That would fit. That's what he sent in his power to Egypt. Verse 6, he stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Cushan. Cushan is in the south of Egypt, modern-day Ethiopia. The curtains in the land of Midian did trail. Midian is the land east of the Dead Sea. So what, what is Habakkuk seeing here in this vision? He's seeing the power of God manifested in mountains, in hills. He's seeing the, 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 the plagues and pestilence that God has sent, more than likely in terms of judgment. There is some evidence that in verse 6, what he's really referring to is the future, when God is going to, is going to cleanse and purge the earth uh, as the new heavens and new earth are created and get it ready to the inhabitants of all those redeemed from, from all of history for all eternity. But God has that power. He shakes the nations. He quakes the mountains. He sinks the everlasting hills. He has the power over nature to do whatever he wants to do. And he's done it. He did it to Egypt and the plagues that forced Egypt to let Israel go. So you see his splendor. You see his power. Then verse 8 and 9 and 10 are his judgments. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers? Or your indignation against the sea? When you rode on your horses on your chariot of salvation? What's that referring to? Well, most expositors say that's referring to the, the crossing of the Red Sea in the final stage of the Exodus. When God made the rivers and the sea obey him to take care of, provide, and rescue his people, Israel. Verse 9, you stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and ride. The raging water swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. So I'm suggesting, I would think that might fit, that verse 9 and 10 refer to God's judgment in the flood. Back in Genesis 6, 7, 8, 9, when God judged the world with the flood, where he, he split the earth with rivers. As you remember, the, the earth not only, not only had rain for 40 days, the Bible tells us in Genesis 6 and 7 that the earth cracked open and the sources of water poured from beneath, flooding the earth completely. And then verse 11, the sun and the moon stood in their place in light of your arrows as they sped in the flash of your gl uh, glittering spear. You march through the earth in fury. You thrust the nations in anger as God makes war on the nations. That could be a reference to what will occur at the second coming of Christ. 
but you went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. Now, I look at verse 13 as important because it reminds us of what I just said. God isn't demonstrating all of this power and, and manifesting himself in all of these things in nature just to show off. It's a redemptive purpose. It is a witness to his power, encouraging people to respond. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation. That is what God is always interested in. He rescued and saved Israel, and he rescues and saves us. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked. You're laying him bare from thigh, neck to thigh. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. Again, these verses, I think, refer to the Red Sea catastrophe of Pharaoh's armies, as God fought for his people Israel in that final stage of the Exodus. God fights for his people. He fights for you and me today. We put on the whole armor of God, Ephesians 6, 10 and following, but God fights for us. Jesus is interceding for us at the right hand of the Father. The Holy Spirit is praying for us. He fights for us. He's our advocate in accomplishing his redemptive plan. So what Habakkuk has done is he intermixes all of these phenomenal examples from history of God's splendor, of God's power, of God's judgment, the exodus, the flood, the creation, the fighting at the Red Sea. All of these demonstrate God's splendor, his power, and his judgment. How does Habakkuk respond? Verse 16, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. I wait for the Babylonians to come. I wait for your discipline to be meted out. But I trust you, God. You are doing what is just. And verse 17 and verse 18 are words of the covenant. Verse 17 refers to Deuteronomy 28, what God said he would do if his people go into idolatry. He would take away the blessing of the land. And then verse 18, though the fig tree shall not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold. There'll be no herd in the stalls. You go to Deuteronomy 28, where God said, if you walk with me in obedience, according to the Mosaic law, I will bless you and you, your fields, your flocks. But if you disobey me and go into idolatry, I will take away the benefits, blessings, and bounty of the land. So verse 17 is a summary of covenantal curse. And that's exactly what happened to Judah. Yet, verse 18, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. He is Habakkuk is recognizing God's justice, God's perfection. I have nowhere else to go. I still trust in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer. He makes me tread on my high places. Man, verse 19 is the language of Psalm 18. It's identical to major parts of Psalm 18. So Habakkuk ends, <laughs> ends his little prof prophecy, his little prophetic oracle, with a marvelous affirmation of his faith, a marvelous affirmation of God's plan of salvation, with a marvelous affirmation that the only place I can go is to find my strength in the Lord. And he will make me sure-footed. He even will help me in difficult times or circumstances. That's what he means. God is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer, sure-footed, stable. He makes me tread on my high places, even in difficult times and circumstances. 
My God is there with me, and I trust him. So Habakkuk ends, and again, to the choir master with string instruments, presumably this would be to be sung in the temple. But what you see here is two major questions he hurls at God, chapter 1 and chapter 2. God responds. And like Job at the end of the book of Job, Habakkuk, in effect, falls on his face and worships. You are a God of splendor. You are a God of power. You are a God of judgment. What is going to happen to us is just the covenantal curses of verse 17. Yet, I trust in you. You, I rejoice in Yahweh. I take joy in his salvation. He is my strength. He makes me stable. He even takes me through the difficult circumstances of times which they are about to face. The book is over. Two questions followed by one of the most marvelous hymns of praise and adoration to the sovereign God of history. And because he's the sovereign God of history, I can trust him for my future. And that's what Habakkuk is saying as he brings his little gem to a conclusion. Got it? Uh, I have a couple of questions. Yes. Um, one is on uh, verse 19. It yeah. says, he makes me tread on my high places. Is this the same reference uh, as the high places where the idolatrous worship occurred, or is this something else? Oh, no, I don't, uh, no, I don't think it has anything to do with that, Russ. He's talking about in his own life, the high, treacherous, difficult places that he faces. So it's an overcoming of obstacles. That's right, because he's using the metaphor of a deer. Well, it's a simile, actually. My feet like the deer. Mm -hmm. He makes me sure-footed, stable, even when I'm in the high, unstable places of life. That's the ah, got it. God keeps me stable. God keeps me focused. God takes care of me, even in the high, in the high places there is, is a metaphor for the difficult circumstances of life. And Jude is about to face the most difficult circumstances of life they've ever faced. They're going to be rooted and torn out of the land and taken to Babylon. Got it. My other question is a little bit more obscure. Um, it, it, in this book of Habakkuk and the one that we're going to, Psalms, there is frequently, and it, you kind of skipped over it, there's this uh, word called Selah. You see that in the Psalms over it. It's, yep. It is, I, whenever I look it up, it seems to be like some musical instruction yep. to the choir master. Yep. Can you expand on that at all? Well, to be honest with you, uh, Russ, we don't exactly know. Um, we, we know what the Hebrew word means, but most expositors have reached a conclusion, and this is not unique with me, that this is a, it's a musical term that probably has comparable to what we do when we're singing in a choir or whatever. It's a time where you take a rest. <clears throat> Everybody collectively takes a rest because something even more significant is about to be said. So it's a musical term highlighting what the musicians are supposed to do. And so I always think of it, it's like, okay, you take a rest. Everybody takes a breath at the same time because you're about to say something, sing something even more significant. In the <clears throat> so like a momentary pause, yes. almost like a, like a measure rest or is, I got it. Okay. That's exactly. Again, that's the way, I mean, we just don't know exactly. Right. Themes. I, that's kind of the best way to look at it, because as you did correctly say, you see it all over the songs. Mm. It, it, almost every song, it's, I mean, not everyone, but well, a lot songs have it. And it is clearly a musical term of some type. That's the best is, I can do with that. Is there any reason that it appears, I mean, I get the Psalms, right? Is, is it because this prayer is kind of framed at the beginning saying that like the Psalms, it's got a musical instrument at the beginning well, and, and that's he, why they use this? Um, yeah, or is there so. some other significance to well, that? I think that so, it's just these two the books? Very last, the very last words of Habakkuk are to the choir master with string and instrument. He is intending that this be sung in the temple. Right. And so, uh, I mean, that's why he's constructing it like a hymn, <laughs> which is what the Psalms are. The Psalms are the hymns of ancient Israel. And so he is intending this to be sung. 
Got it. Okay, thank you. You bet. Absolutely. Okay. All right, do everybody know, okay? Jim? Do we know if, the, if Habakkuk was taken into captivity with the people of Israel or? That's a great question. We do not know. We know about Jeremiah. We know about Ezekiel. We know about Daniel. We do not know about Habakkuk. That, the Bible is silent on that, Jim, causes most to think that Habakkuk died before the specific uh, captivity occurred, 586. He's writing his book about 600, we're rounding it off, about 600 BC. But the, 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 the major consensus is because the texts are silent. They're not silent about Jeremiah or Ezekiel or Daniel or anybody else. They're silent at Habakkuk that he died before the captivity. But I wouldn't die for that. But it just seems the silence seems to indicate that force. That's a it good just, question. That's a great it question. Just, it just, um, you know, you think about this. I mean, inside the nation of Judah, there had to be a, a faithful remnant. There was. And they... I mean, they were not responsible for the sins and the idolatry of Israel, but they were swept up and taken along. That's right. With, with all of them. I mean, it's just. That's right. I mean, it just, you, you can almost just, the heart goes out to them. That's right. For what the consequence, I used to tell my kids, choices have consequences. And I mean, sometimes they have consequences for people who aren't guilty of. That's right. Now, for some reason, my screen is showing this, but um, you can still hear me, can't you? Yes. Okay. Doesn't matter whether you can see me or not. You know, Jim, that's a really important point. And I, I've talked with my lead pastor, my boss at my church where I serve on staff. I share, shared this with him a couple of times. You know, if God chooses to continue to discipline the United States, the church will experience that discipline. We're not going to be, we're not going to be adverse to it. We we will be a part of that, but that will give the church a tremendous opportunity to be the witness. And and that's what was happening. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, all of these great prophets, and the, the and your your word is the right word, the remnant of thousands and thousands. Jeremiah will write to them near the end of his book. When you go to Babylon, settle down. Plant your crops, raise your children, because you're going to be there for 70 years. But be the witness for Yahweh that he's calling you to be. So they were swept up in the discipline. They were torn from the land just like the apostates were. But they represented the Lord in Babylon. And Ezekiel does that, Daniel does that, and so on. So it's, it's a reminder of, to us that if God chooses to judge and discipline the United States, we may be caught up in that. But it gives us an opportunity to be the witnesses for him. Now, I didn't mean that as doom and gloom, because I don't know what God's going to do. But I, I do see from history and from the scriptures that that is often what happens. You are swept up in it. But it's an opportunity for us to be the witness. Now, I see I two verses. Uh, my grace is sufficient, and my peace I give unto you. That's right. In these times. That's right. I think that's those are promises. Absolutely. Stand regardless of the circumstances. Well, gentlemen, it's uh, time for me to, to pray here. I'm going to pray now. Next week, I'll be sending out the notes for this, so you'll have them for the next week's class. We're going to do a study of a few Psalms, and that'll take us several weeks, and then we'll, we'll be getting into the book of Ephesians. So let me pray. Lord, thank you for the book of Habakkuk. I chose to do this uh, for the, our study. It's, it's a marvelous little gem in the Old Testament. Rarely is it studied, and I think people are missing out. So I wanted the guys to work through this. The honesty, the forthrightness, the brutal, brutal transparency of Habakkuk as it reviews all the situation in Judah and his perplexing response, well, why are you choosing pagans to judge us? And there's those fantastic and marvelous and stirring depictions of you, O oh God. You are a good God, a just God, a righteous God, and we're so thankful that you're merciful and gracious as well. We all, we are all trophies of your grace. We didn't deserve the salvation which you've given us, but we are so thankful for it. I pray for each man, each person here. Be gracious to them, sustain them with your grace. May they be strong, determined men of faith. 
May they represent you well in the dark, dark world in which we now live. We trust you with all this, God. And we want to be your representatives. And we ask you to enable us to do that in Jesus' name. Amen. See you next week. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you, gentlemen. Yeah.